Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. So Yingyi's, we have a bumper podcast episode for everybody covering an amazing month of October. We'll touch on why house prices will fall 20% if the RBA lifts rates 100 basis points or more, and how we've used artificial intelligence to provide the world's first empirical probabilities for conflicts between all major global states, amongst many other fascinating topics. Over to you, Yingers. Thanks, Chris. So October was an extraordinary month, especially for bond markets, with all Coolabar's strategies outperforming strongly. By way of example, the long short credit fund returned 1 to 1.07% after fees or 1.21% gross in October compared to the main bond benchmarks, which registered some of their largest losses in history. This outperformance was driven by a range of factors, including hedging out interest rate risk to insulate our portfolios from rate shocks, taking profits on all senior bank bond positions and hedging bank credit risk in anticipation of wider credit spreads on these securities. In Australia, both short and long-term interest rates surged as a result of an upside inflation surprise, with core inflation printing at 0.7% for the September quarter and 2.1% for the 12 months versus consensus forecasts of 0.5% and 1.8% respectively. In turn, the year-on-year inflation pulse slipping into the RBA's target 2-3% band well ahead of schedule generated a dramatic shift in market pricing for the cash rate with more than 130 basis points of rate hikes predicted for 2022 at one point. That's equivalent to circa five standard 25 basis point rate increases. This was awkwardly juxtaposed against the RBA's claim that it would not touch its target cash rate until 2024. Since February, bond markets have been seeking to boldly challenge the RBA's yield curve target policy, which sought to hold the interest rate on the April 2024 Commonwealth Government bond at 0.1%. This policy was the centrepiece of the RBA's forward guidance that it would not lift the cash rate until 2024 at the earliest. In the first quarter of 2021, the RBA changed the rules around the market's ability to borrow the April 2024 bond to make it harder and more expensive for short sellers to bet on the price of the bond declining and its yield rising. Following the upside surprise in the New Zealand inflation data on the 18th of October, the market once again turned its attention to selling the April 2024 bond and punting on its yield climbing above the RBA's 0.1% target. Initially, the RBA fought back, buying more of the bond and forcing the yield down from circa 0.2% towards its 0.1% target. But the domestic inflation shock finally eviscerated the RBA's commitment to the yield curve targeting policy, and the market was allowed to have its way. After the RBA failed to defend the target, the yield on the bond spiked to 0.7%, which was broadly in line with our published theoretical estimates for fair value. So, Yingers, did the bond market bandits prevail? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, they were right insofar as the RBA was forced to dump the policy in 2021, years ahead of its 2024 commitment. On the other hand, the RBA would argue that it was always data or state dependent. The RBA's time-based guidance was an exceptional response to exceptional circumstances in the form of the 1 in 100 year 
pandemic, which was always covered by the caveat that the RBA would ultimately be dictated to by the data. It is doubtful, however, that the RBA will ever repeat this long-term forward guidance again, given the perceived damage it has inflicted on its credibility. In contrast, the much less prescriptive and more agile bond purchase program has been an immense success for the RBA and affords Martin Place far greater optionality vis-a-vis unexpected downside risks. And for all the hoopla about inflation, Yingers, those risks still remain. Yes, Chris. There is a case for the RBA harnessing the bond purchase program, which has reduced both the exchange rate and longer-term interest rates well below their counterfactual levels, alongside reductions in the overnight cash rate in future downturns. This would attenuate the extent to which the RBA relies exclusively on the cash rate and mitigate housing bubble risks that excessively low short-term rates generate in an economy with a preponderance of variable rate debt. If the RBA had limited faith in its forecasting prowess prior to the pandemic, it should have none now. The RBA's forecast for the shock proved to be far too dire while it has probably underestimated the strength of the recovery. And every time it has predicated policy decisions on predictions for the future, rather than now casting or divining the present, it has tied itself up in knots. Don't you think, Chris? Well, Yingers, I'll leave that harsh characterisation to you but it is certainly unquestionable that the yield curve target played its part for as long as it was required, as did the RBA's similarly constructed term funding facility, under which it lent banks $188 billion for a three-year term at a cost of between 0.1% and 0.25% annually. I do think that both measures have provided tremendous support to the Australian economy at a time when it desperately needed it. And Chris, the sharp increase in short-term interest rates in October was echoed by a striking rise in the 10-year Australian government bond yield, which lifted from 1.49% at the end of September to 2.09% by the 29th of October. This smashed fixed-rate bonds as proxied by the APRA's benchmark for the superannuation industry, which is the Osborne Composite Bond Index. In October, the Composite Bond Index declined by a stunning 3.55%, which was its second worst month in the last 30 plus years. The worst month was February 2021 earlier this year when the index lost 3.58%. This means that the Composite Bond Index has now registered a 5.3% negative return over the year to October 2021, which is its third worst rolling 12-month return since 1989. Coolabar's products have been deliberately designed as zero-duration or floating rate strategies to protect against precisely this sort of interest rate shock. The one exception is Coolabar's active composite bond index strategy under the ticker FIXD, which tracks this index and outperformed it by 0.27% in October and by 0.63% over the last 12 months. The floating rate benchmark, known as the Osborne Floating Rate Note Index, also declined by 0.1% in October, which was its seventh worst month on record. This was unusual because in contrast to a fixed rate bond that suffers price falls as yields climb, the FRN index is not ostensibly impacted by rising interest rates, given the bonds underlying it have variable interest rates that are meant to adjust alongside changes in short-term rates. The headwinds for the FRN index were, however, powered by entirely different drivers, which Kulabar had been forecasting for some time. 
That's right, Yingers. Many months ago, Coolbar took profits on all its senior bank bonds and further hedged other bank credit exposures because of our emphatic view that the credit spreads on these securities would have to increase quite materially. We've repeatedly argued that the need for the banks to repay the $188 billion they owe the RBA under the TFF, combined with the requirement to replace the circa $139 billion committed liquidity facility, or CLF, the rapid shuttering of which Coolabar was actually the first to call, would mean that, according to our analysis, the four major banks alone have to issue $150 billion per annum of wholesale debt over the next three years. And Chris, in the past, the banks have been the biggest buyers of their own bonds in Aussie dollars for their CLF portfolios, with the local bond market accounting for about half of all their global debt issuance. The abolition of the CLF means that this domestic demand by bank balance sheets will no longer exist, which will compel the banks to rely more heavily on overseas issuance. They will also have to issue at wider credit spreads. In the post-GFC period, five-year major bank senior bonds have historically traded on a credit spread range of between about 70 basis points to 100 basis points, albeit that was with the benefit of the huge domestic bank balance sheet bid for these assets. We would expect that the new normal for five-year major bank senior bond spreads is slightly higher at somewhere between 80 and 110 basis points. This played out in October with Coolabar's proprietary five-year major bank senior bond benchmark, which is a constant maturity index, increasing from 47 basis points to 60 basis points over the month. At the margin, this also pressured five-year major bank T2 bond spreads, which climbed from 132 basis points to 142 basis points over the same period. While Coolabar has taken substantial profits on our global Aussie bank T2 positions in recent months, We have been more neutral on the sector given the multiple of tier two spreads to senior spreads has been at historically cheap levels of around 2.8 times. By the end of October, the tier two senior spread multiple had declined to 2.4 times, which is still historically cheap given the standard post-GFC heuristic of circa 1.8 to 2.3 times. One sector Coolabar has been positive on coming into year-end has been the ASX hybrid market where we have argued that large repayments flowing from the redemptions of the CBAPE and WBCPG hybrid securities in October and December, respectively, would inject a mountain of about $2.1 billion of cash into retail investors' hands looking for a high-yielding home. This played out in October with ASX Hybrids Index delivering a robust 0.63% fully franked return as the five-year major bank hybrid spread compressed from 241 basis points to 231 basis points. We believe it's possible these spreads could test 200 basis points before year-end. Another outperformer in October was the state government bond market, or SEMIs, which was supported by a range of factors. Across the semis, Coolabar's constant maturity 10-year index declined modestly from 34.8 basis points to 30.9 basis points on a spread to the Commonwealth Government bond curve basis, generating attractive capital gains. These spreads remain well above their recent May 2021 tights of circa 17.2 basis points, despite the fact that Coolabar estimates Aussie banks will have to buy between $250 and $450 billion of state and Commonwealth government bonds over the next few years to both replace the CLF and to compensate for the loss of high-quality liquid assets that flow from the repayment of the $188 billion owing under the RBA's TFF. The latter is somewhat technical, but in short, when the RBA lent this money to banks, it created digital cash in the form of deposits held by banks at the RBA. 
these deposits count as emergency liquidity under the bank's regulatory liquidity coverage ratios, also known as LCRs. The repayment of the TFF will automatically destroy $188 billion of this digital cash, which the banks will have to replace with new high-quality liquid assets in the form of buying state and Commonwealth government bonds. A similar dynamic holds with the RBA's bond purchase program, also known as QE or quantitative easing. When the RBA buys government bonds, it creates digital cash and gives it to the banking system in the form of deposits held at the RBA. This counts towards the bank's LCRs. As the RBA takers or reduces its bond purchases, there is less digital cash created. On Coolabar's modelling, the banking system suffers a particularly large hole in terms of its high-quality liquid assets in 2023 and 2024. This was, however, based on the assumption of a slow RBA taper of its QE program, dropping from $4 billion a week of purchases in February to $3 billion a week in the following quarter and so on. A faster taper would bring forward the need for banks to buy more high-quality liquid assets in 2022. There are a number of other variables that are driving demand for semis right now. These include, firstly, Australian 10-year government bond yields jumping to more than 30 basis points above equivalent US yields. Yes, Huawei, we've had a contrarian view for a while that Aussie 10-year government bond yields would rise to 30 basis points above equivalent US yields, which only a few weeks ago was regarded as fanciful by many market participants. Yet in the final week of October, this spread differential did indeed climb from around 10 basis points to more than 30 basis points, making Australian yields incredibly attractive to foreign investors. In fact, at one point, the differential jumped to around 50 basis points. This has precipitated a wave of offshore buying of especially high yielding semis, which offer spreads over Commonwealth government bonds that are as much as 30 to 55 basis points, depending on the tenor. We've observed offshore demand for semis ramp up in the latter part of October, and this has continued into November. And Chris, a second factor driving interest in semis is the rapid vaccination coverage enabling New South Wales and Victoria to reopen faster than markets had assumed. Coolabar's herd immunity modelling back in June 2021 had forecast that Australia could vaccinate 90% of the adult population by Jan 2022. We are at 78% currently. This projection is on track to be realised with New South Wales and Victoria leading the way with double vaccination coverage of 89.7% and 81% respectively. Markets had assumed that these states would not fully reopen until November or December, which has proven to be overly pessimistic. A third factor is that state budgets have been much stronger than expected. Coolabar forecasts that the state budget deficits for FY 2021 would be a fraction of what the states predicted which continues to play out. In November 2020, Victoria forecast a gargantuan $38 billion deficit for the financial year ended June 30. In May, it slashed this to $29 billion. And in the final June 2021 budget outcome, this was reduced by another $4 billion to $25 billion, which is $13 billion less than first predicted. A similar pattern occurred across other states. Queensland originally projected an $8.6 billion net operating deficit for the financial year 2021. This was crushed to $3.8 billion in June. You would think with the financial year behind it, Queensland would know how big the deficit was. But it turned out much better than expected, coming in at just $900 million. And Queensland is likely in surplus right now. 
As we come out of lockdown, there is every reason to think the New South Wales and Victorian economies will start roaring again. The rest of the country was already on fire. And the transition from the pandemic-induced lockdowns to the more normal notion of living with COVID-19 will inevitably drive bond markets to price in long-term interest rates that are likewise more normal. And a fourth crucial factor was New South Wales shocking with $22 billion of debt repayment. Yes, Inga's Coolabar's activist ESG campaign to ensure New South Wales did not leverage up its balance sheet with 20 to $47 billion of unnecessary taxpayer debt just to allow it to run a huge equity-centric carry trade has rendered considerable results in recent months in what has been a major shock for investors. On the 22nd of October, the New South Wales government sensationally announced that it will be suspending $11 billion in projected taxpayer revenue contributions to the New South Wales Generation Fund's debt retirement fund. This is on top of the unprecedented $11 billion in debt repayments that Premier Dominic Perrottet announced on the 20th of September, which will be made using the capital accumulated in the debt retirement fund. The latter is a unique creation of Perites, with the DRF increasing in size from $15 billion in May to $26 billion following the sale of the second half of WestConnex in September. By rediverting this $11 billion of taxpayer revenue from the fund back to New South Wales' budget and repaying $11 billion in debt, New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane, a noted longtime ESG advocate, will both radically reduce New South Wales's fiscal pressures and cut taxpayers' debt burden by never-before-seen $22 billion over the years. That's right, Chris. In Coolabar's ESG activism campaign, we had argued that New South Wales should stop diverting scarce taxpayer revenues to the NGF's debt retirement fund, which have to be replaced with additional debt issuance given New South Wales is running budget deficits. That is, this approach to funding the debt retirement fund would have paradoxically increased New South Wales debt and hence the fiscal risk the state faces at the worst possible time. Prior to the COVID-19 shock, New South Wales had made the policy decision to divert all state royalties and state-owned corporation dividends to the NGF's debt retirement fund. The AFR's John Kehoe reveals that this was forecast by Treasury to sum to an enormous $11 billion of de facto taxpayer debt funding into the debt retirement fund this financial year and over the forward estimates in what was equivalent to running a huge leverage carry trade by raising debt and betting this money on equities and junk bonds. By suspending these funding commitments, Treasurer Keane has therefore saved taxpayers $11 billion of future debt issuance on top of the $11 billion Premier Perrottet has promised to repay. Treasurer Keane also announced a review of the debt retirement fund's approach to ESG, following revelations in The Guardian that it was providing debt and equity funding to authoritarian states and tax havens. Following Premier Perrottet's announcement in late September that New South Wales would use the $26 billion that had accumulated in his debt retirement fund to repay $11 billion of New South Wales debt, there was much speculation as to what this meant in practice. In particular, there were repeated suggestions that New South Wales might not actually repay any debt with this money, or if they did, it would be a lot less than $11 billion. The most popular claim was that New South Wales might simply allow its bonds to mature and not be officially refinanced while leaving the $11 billion in the debt retirement fund to be punted on global stocks, private equity and illiquid loans or junk bonds. Coulibar rejected these assertions, arguing that New South Wales would do precisely what Perrottet stated, 
That is, use the $11 billion to buy back and or repay New South Wales bonds directly from the debt retirement fund. And on the 20th of October, Treasury Keane again delivered with gusto, surprising the market with the announcement by his debt issuance and investment agency, TCOR, that New South Wales is, in fact, actively buying back bonds across the maturity spectrum in the secondary market via reverse inquiry and or tender, and it may also use this money to repay any upcoming maturities. And TCOP notes this should directly reduce New South Wales funding tasks. Quote, all net proceeds received from the transaction will be used for debt reduction, end quote, TCOP said. In this context, TCOP comments that the types of bonds New South Wales buys back will be determined according to the value to the state, with this being driven by the impact of the purchases on the borrowing requirement over the forward estimates pricing. In a Q&A published alongside the announcement, TCOP poses the question, will you lower your funding program by the maturity proceeds? A clear response is provided. It is expected that all else equal, by managing WestConnect's proceeds together with the state's overall cash balances, the funding program will be reduced by $11 billion over time. There remain some important outstanding policy issues for Treasury Keane to resolve in respect of the NGF's debt retirement fund. These include what to do with the circa $2.3 billion of debt-funded contributions New South Wales previously made to the fund in the 2021 financial year. These should self-evidently be harnessed for infrastructure funding and or debt repayment. Otherwise, they will just represent New South Wales leveraging up taxpayer money to punt on markets. And what to do with the circa $15 billion of capital, including the $2.3 billion of aforementioned contributions left in the debt retirement fund once New South Wales repays its $11 billion in debt. Rather than gambling this on financial markets, the $15 billion should be deployed to pay for the $108.5 billion in infrastructure spending that Premier Perrottet has signed up for. After all, the $7 billion from the sale of the first half of WestConnect that seeded the debt retirement fund in 2018 was committed by Perrottet to pay for new infrastructure spending. This could be easily achieved by the debt retirement fund buying bonds issued by the New South Wales government to pay for future infrastructure spending which is permitted under the NGF's legislation. Make no mistake, the $26 billion debt retirement fund is an extraordinary innovation. Premier Perrottet had the exceptional foresight to create it in 2018 when New South Wales budget was recording huge surpluses and the state had negative net debt. Perrottet's vision was to use the debt retirement fund to accumulate reserves to repay debt whenever the budget lurched into deep deficit which of course it did in 2020 during the one in a hundred year shock wrought by the pandemic. And it is because of Perrottet and now Treasurer Matt Keane that New South Wales is in the remarkable position whereby it can draw down on the debt retirement fund during this crisis to slash taxpayer debt by $22 billion or more. Importantly, the debt retirement fund can be replenished by Keane when the New South Wales budget returns to surplus via future reserves and asset sales. Taking profits on stocks when they are trading at all-time highs while interest rates are near record lows is also a very smart move. Don't you think, Chris? I do, Yingers. And as a lender to all the major Australian state governments, Coolabar and our many stakeholders, including numerous super funds, believes that these are exceptionally responsible ESG decisions that we would strongly support. Now, Yingers, I want to turn to housing and the RBA. Looking ahead, one existential question is where the RBA 
and the US Federal Reserve's so-called neutral cash rate lies. Most economists think that the local neutral cash rate is somewhere between 2% and 4%. If this is correct, it would mean that the RBA has to raise the cash rate to around 3% to ensure it is neither contractionary nor stimulatory. While we have different views on this internally, my hunch is that the neutral rate is a lot lower than people think and closer to 1% to 1.5%. It's ultimately an empirical question is, you only know when you know, and hence only time will tell. Yet even 100 basis points of hiking is would have profound consequences for asset pricing. Combined with some expected out-of-cycle hikes from banks' care of normalising funding costs, this would likely force house prices, for example, to correct by circa 15 to 25%, according to our forecasting models. In the decades since the GFC, years, central banks have been able to pour seemingly infinite amounts of money on all economic problems because there have been no inflationary costs. But we've long argued that these policies will prove ultimately very inflationary. And today we're seeing that central banks increasingly face that invidious choice that their predecessors confronted decades ago. Namely, do you want higher growth or lower inflation in a climate in which inflation expectations are climbing? Yes, Chris. And for years, we've argued that the community should come to expect much more volatility from residential property because of the huge increase in the household debt to income ratio, which had made borrowers far more sensitive to interest rate changes. We've asserted that this would generate a more frequent boom-bust cycle in prices as a result of variations in borrowing rates. If you look at a chart of CoreLogic's 8-capital city hedonic index, you can see that substantial drawdowns in prices were relatively rare between 1980 and 2003. And yet since 2003, there have been six distinct episodes in which prices have declined with what appears to be increasing severity. It might come as a surprise that the single biggest fall in Aussie housing prices over the last 40 years was the innocuous episode between September 2017 and June 2019, when capital city values dropped by a record 10.2% care of the imposition of APRA's macroprudential constraints on lending. The losses at this juncture were, in fact, much worse than those experienced during either the GFC or the COVID-19-induced recession. Since the end of the 2017 correction, capital city home values have climbed by a robust 30%. The capital gains following the much more mild COVID-19 retrenchment have been 21%. Going back to the end of the 2010 to 2011 downturn, we find that homeowners have profited from a 72% increase in the value of their most important asset. That means that dwelling values have appreciated at a circa 6% annualised pace over the last decade. And that is at the overall asset or property level, assuming no gearing, accounting for the use of significant amounts of leverage, the actual tax-free return on equity homeowners have captured has been much higher again. The RBA has made it abundantly clear that it is going to be highly resistant to lifting its cash rate until it observes consistent annual wage growth of 3 to 4%, coupled with core inflation sustainably sitting at or above the midpoint of its target 2 to 3% band. This implies that it will not touch rates until somewhere between late 2022 and mid 2023. Now, to be clear, Ying, as we're still forecasting ongoing house appreciation until the RBA hikes and or banks materially lift mortgage rates. More specifically, home values should climb by another 5 to 10 percentage points from present levels. 
So there's some upside left in this trade. Yet if and when the RBA does seek to normalise the cash rate, prices should fall as night follows day. And if the RBA is able to lift rates by 100 basis points or more, it will likely be the largest correction on record. Assuming rates increase relatively promptly over a, say, 12-month period, we would expect, as I mentioned earlier, national home values to decline by 15 to 25%. It is possible the adjustment is smaller if the RBA moves more slowly and the value of residential real estate mean reverts partly via household income growth over the inflection of time. But our central case would be a circa 20% decline after the first 100 basis points of hikes. It's worth noting that if we apply the RBA's internal housing valuation model to this question, we get somewhat larger numbers. The model developed by Peter Chillip and Trent Saunders, which we have replicated and refined, suggests dwelling values could drop by about 33% following 100 basis points of hikes. While renters might embrace this prospect years, homeowners would obviously rather avoid it. And Chris, I want to make some quick comments on the relentless bull versus bear stereotyping of our remarks on this topic regarding housing. We are neither. We are just trying to divine the direction of the market. By way of background, we were the first to call a 10% correction in Aussie house prices in 2017, which is what transpired between September 2017 and June 2019. We were also the first to anticipate a 10% rise in prices in April 2019, which is what materialised prior to the COVID-19 shock. To the best of our knowledge, we were the only forecasters to predict both a modest 0-5% to drop in home values between March and September 2020 they fell 2.7% across the capital cities. And a subsequent 10 to 20% increase in prices starting in September of that year. Since September 2020, capital city dwelling values have appreciated 21%. Our 10 to 20% forecast for future capital gains following a modest dip between March and September 2020 was predicated on the assumption of 100 basis points of rate cuts accounting for the steeper fixed-rate mortgage reductions that ensued care of the RBA lending $188 billion of ultra-cheap three-year money to banks, we adjusted our expectation for the price rise to 20 to 30%, which we are on track to achieve. Going back further in time, we forecast that prices would soften in late 2010 following a series of aggressive RBA rate hikes, which they did. Capital city prices declined by 6% between late 2010 through to the end of 2011. Yet in 2010, doomsayer Jeremy Grantham had other ideas, claiming that Aussie house prices would plunge 42%. We bet Grantham $100 million against the core logic index that prices would be higher, not lower, in three years' time, even though we were a little bearish on the immediate-term outlook. Over the period covered by this proposed wager, dwelling values did indeed climb by 5.8%. In early 2012, we got into a debate about whether the housing market was starting to recover. Our data suggested it was, whereas others felt prices were still falling. We now know prices began appreciating in January of that year. In 2013, we argued that the RBA's rate cuts would trigger a housing boom and years of double-digit price growth, which would eventually morph into a bubble. The RBA panned the proposition at the time. Yet that's precisely what we got between 2013 and 2017, which eventually compelled APRA to aggressively intervene. Finally, way back in 2008, we argued that the national housing correction wrought by the GFC would be modest, regularly debating the likes of Steve Keane and others who predicted much more calamitous 30 to 40% price falls. 
In practice, dwelling values retrenched by just 6.4% in 2008 and promptly rebounded by 12.2% in 2009. Yeah, so Yingers, we do have a bit of history with housing. My own introduction to the topic was a result of co-authoring the 2003 Prime Minister's Home Ownership Task Force report on the demand and supply sides of the market. I also happened to co-found a business that developed the daily hedonic house price indices that CoreLogic now publishes and the associated automated property valuation models that leverage off that same technology and which are used by most Australian banks to revalue their housing collateral on a daily, weekly or monthly basis. And Chris, in October, Coolabar also released some globally cutting-edge modelling and forecasts for the risk of international conflicts. Back in 2012, we argued that notwithstanding a wealth of data on the history of military conflicts and the so-called correlates of war, there was a staggering paucity of serious quantitative research on the actual empirical probability or risk of these existential events materialising. There was a further absence of efforts to rigorously predict conflicts between specific country pairs, leveraging the extraordinary array of longitudinal information that we can now access, which affords potentially powerful insights into the shifting probabilities of nations engaging in warfare. We observed that although, quote, the most profound hazard faced is the risk of war, we invest vast taxpayer resources nominally insuring against it. There is a startling dearth of quantitative research on forecasting the frequency and severity of wars. Despite more than 200 conflicts since 1900, causing 35 million deaths, end quote. In a 2012 paper, the Swiss professor Thomas Chadafoe similarly noted that, quote, the prediction of war has been the subject of surprisingly little interest in the literature, in marked difference to a wide range of fields from finance to geology, which devote much of their attention to the prediction of extraordinary black swan events, such as financial crises or earthquakes, end quote. After advocating for the development of conflict forecasting models, including via a piece published by the Lowy Institute, a researcher from the Department of Defence approached us to discuss the proposal, suggesting that the military was interested in pursuing it, but nothing eventuated. And as an investor in global financial markets with a team of 30 professionals, including 11 quantitative specialists, five of whom have PhDs in maths, physics, computer science, and engineering, we are constantly grappling with the prediction business. Last year, for example, we developed COVID-19 forecasting models for every country globally that allowed us to anticipate an earlier than expected peak in the first wave of infections in April, 2020. For the past decade, the single biggest macro event risk that we've been seeking to understand is the spectre of war between the two dominant superpowers, the United States and China. Intuitively, the probabilities of a US-China conflict erupting appear to have accelerated under the hardline presidency of Xi Jinping, with many experts, including Dr. John Lee, Dr. Ariana Scala-Mastro, Dr. Rory Medcalf, and Dr. Ross Babbage, now handicapping the risk of a lower intensity conflict at circa 50%, if not higher. Note that all these individuals consult to us at Coolabar. In recent weeks, we revealed via the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a defence think tank, that a team led by Kai Lin, Nathan Jiang, James Yang and Christopher Joy have been working on research that draws on 160 years of academic conflict data to develop advanced quantitative techniques, including the latest machine learning methods 
to predict the empirical probability of different types of military conflicts with varying severities over a range of forecast intervals, focusing on horizons of 12 months, 5 years and 10 years. This research, which covers most countries, is summarised in a technical academic paper and a companion non-technical summary, which are now publicly available via SSRN and also the Coolabar Capital website. Cases of military conflicts by one nation state directed explicitly towards the government, official representatives, official forces, property and or territory of another state are known in the academic literature as militarised interstate disputes or MIDs. MIDs can be classified into increasing tiers of severity, ranging from a threat to use force, known as threat, the actual use of force, force, an attack, clash or raid, known as attack, or all-out war with a minimum duration and number of battle deaths, which we refer to as war. We utilise these definitions in our forecasting models. To tackle the relatively rare event forecast problem that warfare represents, we applied a representative suite of data science, statistical and machine learning techniques to an array of data sets on potential variables that explain MIDs, with the modelling approaches assessed on their ability to generate accurate and calibrated probabilities of future outbreaks of MIDs between nations. Significantly, our research currently implies that the probability of a low-intensity kinetic military conflict between Taiwan and China over the next 10 years has trended higher over time towards approximately 75% today. Accounting for global alliance networks, the probability of a low-intensity military conflict over the next decade between the United States and China is also elevated at around 46%. Other country pairs likewise face seemingly high probabilities of low-intensity conflict, including the United States and Russia at 30%, China and Russia at 44%, China and Japan at 46%, and China and India at 55%. When we raise the conflict intensity threshold from smaller scale attacks to outright war, the conflict probabilities decline noticeably, although they remain material. Our modelling suggests, for instance, that country pairs including China and India at 22%, China and the US at 12%, China and Taiwan at 11%, and China and Japan at 10%, all have a 1 in 10 to 1 in 5 chance of engaging in a bona fide war in the next 10 years with potentially cataclysmic consequences. Note that the risk of war between the United States and Russia is interestingly much lower at 2%. These models and their calibrated probabilities have a wide spectrum of potential applications, including military strategic planning, government foreign policy making, political decisioning and financial risk management. In covering this research, the Australian newspaper's foreign editor, Greg Sheridan, argues that while, quote, there is no risk more important than a potential US-China conflict, most analysis of such issues is necessarily impressionistic and subjective, end quote. Beyond better understanding the threats we face, disclosing the real empirical probability of conflict could help decision makers mitigate the tendency of the community to undervalue defence spending and the catastrophe insurance it provides by extrapolating out from their own peaceful existence. Quote, this research indicates that every active player should be hedging conflict risk during the next five to 10 years especially, end quote. Sheridan concludes. In a Sky News interview with Peter Credlin on the modelling, 
Sheridan points out that this is precisely why Australia's inability to properly defend itself with credible asymmetric military capabilities is so inherently problematic. To the best of our knowledge, the core contribution of this work to the academic literature is the integration of a wide range of historical data sets, including predictors of MIDs and advanced variable selection methods with sophisticated modeling techniques to address a well-defined set of forecasting problems based on different MID severities and time horizons, culminating in the generation of calibrated forecast probabilities of different types of MID outbreaks between any state pair of interests. We believe this is also the first time these insights and forecast probabilities have been disseminated via a publicly accessible graphical user interface system. Our goal is to stimulate further academic study and inject greater objectivity into public debates around the risks of military conflicts, which are almost always predicated on qualitative and highly subjective opinions that are frequently devoid of a data-centric evidentiary basis and lack empirical testing of their efficacy. To further facilitate discussion and education around the risks of conflicts, we have developed an interactive graphical user interface that is available at predictumwar.com. This houses one of our simpler logistic regression forecasting models and also provides data visualization of the changing historical conflict probabilities between individual countries and animations of the shifts in national military capabilities over hundreds of years. So that wraps up our podcast episode today. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a lovely rest of the week. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.